On this episode, we take a deep dive into hydrogen fuel cells. I'm Jim Park, and this is an HDT Talks Trucking Special Report. This episode is sponsored by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange. In the quest for a greener alternative to diesel fuel, battery power is getting most of the attention these days. There's been a lot of talk about hydrogen fuel cell-powered trucks over the past couple of years, but frankly, some of it's been a bit difficult to take seriously. On the other hand, companies like Daimler and Volvo, Cummins, Navistar, Hyundai, Hino and Toyota are all investing in fuel cell technology, and those companies don't invest billions of dollars on a fantasy. Hydrogen is coming. Our guest on this episode is Ben Nyland. He's the president and CEO of fuel cell producer Loop Energy. That may be a new name to many of us, but Loop has been developing fuel cell technology for over 20 years now, and it's an active player in the fuel cell business in China and Europe. Ben provides a detailed look behind the fuel cell curtain, how they work, where they'll work, and what they do best. Ben and I'll be back right after this. This episode is sponsored by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange, a unique networking event where fleet managers and suppliers connect and collaborate. HDTX 2021 takes place May 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com to learn more. We're talking today on HDT Talks Trucking with Ben Nyland. He's the president and CEO of Loop Energy. They're based in Burnaby, British Columbia. Ben's responsible for the company's strategic planning, market expansion, and uh, managing key partnerships. Ben, welcome to HTC Talks Trucking. Thanks, Jim. Really appreciate you having me. Well, I've been anxious to talk to you for a while. We haven't uh, actually dug deep into fuel cell technology here on HTT Talks Trucking just yet, so I'm glad to have a chance to talk to you about this. Loop Energy is a fairly new player in the North American market. We've just heard that name come on scene in the last, uh, I would say, year and a half or so, to, at least to, to, to my awareness. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about the company, sort of a high-level historic view? Yeah, absolutely, Jim. Happy to. Um, Loop's a, a fuel cell engine company. So uh, for your listeners who I understand are familiar with the diesel market, the comparable in, in the diesel market would be someone like Cummins or a Detroit diesel in terms of what we aspire to be. Uh, we've got a core technology called fuel cells that that converts hydrogen and oxygen into energy. And, and the company is about 20 years old. So although uh, we haven't really been visible in the market uh, until the last year and a half, the core technology in the company has been under development uh, for quite a while. It was uh, a, a joint effort for about a decade between the company and an organization in Canada called the National Research Council, which is a federal scientific body. Uh, and then in Sort of the last decade, uh, companies started to develop around it as, as the technology came out of incubation with the National Research Council. And so for the last three or four years, we've actually started moving from being a technology company to being a product company. And so we now have products on the market uh, that are targeted towards medium, light, medium and heavy duty vehicles uh, globally in China, in Europe and in North America. And so that's the reason why you're starting to hear about us. Well, I'm excited about that. Um, how do you see Loop's place in the North American market? We've got uh, a couple of other hydrogen fuel cell uh, people now coming into the f- into the fore. Uh, this is all happening re- visibly, at least in the last uh, couple of years. And we've got the uh, you know the battery electric side, and we've got the diesel crowd that are still uh, 
you know, hammering away at their technology, improving it, cleaning it up. Uh, so where does Loop fit into all this? Well, Loop in North America, uh, as, as I mentioned, we're a, we're a fuel cell engine provider. And so we have some demonstration projects in North America. The, the most visible of those is a project we have with Peterbilt in California. Uh, we have a Class 8 uh, Peterbilt 579 that has a fuel cell range extender on it. And some of your listeners may have seen uh, the recent announcements of Peterbilt's 579 EV, which is their battery electric version. And so we've worked with an integrator to add a fuel cell system to that as a demonstration project in the California market. Uh, so we're competing in that market with companies like Ballard Hydrogenics, which is now a, a Cummins company. Uh, and in North America, we're largely dealing at this stage with demonstration projects. In other parts of the world, like China and Europe, the market is scaling more quickly and we're moving from demonstration projects to actual commercial rollouts. But today in North America, the, the market continues to really be dominated by diesel, natural gas, and, and this sort of vehicle and heavy duty. Well, with your experience in Europe and Asia, you know, gaining the necessary knowledge to see what's going to make this work in a heavy duty environment, do you think that's going to speed up the rollout here when, uh, when things do start to really scale up? I think it will. Uh, you know, with any market that is... is um, you know, later to adopt, uh, that market will benefit from the learnings of, of what happened in the other markets. So there, there definitely is that benefit. The disadvantage, of course, is that when, when a market waits to adopt until later, players in other markets learn quite a bit about the technology. And so they tend to benefit economically from the, the rollout uh, more than the domestic players. And I guess that would, be, that would be the risk here is that because North America is choosing to adopt later, that the, the domestic suppliers and the domestic uh, companies may not benefit as much when, when the market does hit. Are there big differences between Europe, Asia, and North America? Are you guys going to have to go back to the drawing board and reconceive this idea, or is it fairly transportable technology? Uh, the differences that you see between the markets are primarily at the chassis level, not at the powertrain level. And so uh, we, we work in the powertrain, and so the technologies and the products uh, will be largely transferable very quickly, um, but we don't foresee any challenges in transferring at the powertrain level into the North American market. I think one of the advantages to technology like this, uh, the, the environmental regulations that surround it, there probably aren't going to be any because there's no emissions. Uh, when you look at the diesel example, um, everywhere in the world has a different emission standard. So the engine makers have to comply with all those different standards. When your technology and similar hydrogen fuel cells, is there anything in there that's going to make uh, regulators, environmentalists stand up and take note and say, well, this won't work here, but it works okay there, or there's going to be differences or different standards for it? Actually, you know, that's a great point. There, there really isn't. And when you look at the materials that go into a, a fuel cell, um, there's, there's nothing in there that would be considered a pollutant. And certainly the, the emissions that it produces along the way are, is just water. Uh, and so in operation, it produces water, which uh, I don't think we're going to have any regulation issues with. Not yet. Uh, there are no pollution, no pollution issues with water. And then at end of life, I think this is one of the areas where, where fuel cells do have an advantage over something like batteries. As an example, there's a lot more press these days about the challenges at end of life with the recycling of lithium ion batteries. And, and as they get deployed more and more, that will become more of a challenge. And, and to be clear, 
you know, we see batteries playing an essential part in this transition to clean energy. We're not a company that, that believes it's only going to be fuel cells. But the fact of the matter is that there are a lot of advantages to fuel cells, and this, this would be one of them. And I could foresee a situation not unlike diesel, where, where you see different recycling requirements globally uh, for batteries based on what those different uh, jurisdictions decide is important. I'm a little unclear exactly how this is going to work. If you have a fuel cell, it's producing its own energy, you know, through its, mm-hmm. in, you know, electrochemical reaction. Do you uh, foresee running trucks solely with a fuel cell or, or is there still um, a battery bank on board that you're charging and maintaining and running the truck off the battery, but sort of keeping the charge up with the fuel cell or you're running direct fuel cells to the wheels? How does the chassis infrastructure work with uh, those components? Well, I, the, this is the beauty of this revolution, Jim, the, of the electric vehicle revolution, is actually we foresee both of those okay. depending on duty cycle um, and, and probably other things we haven't thought about. <clears throat> so whenever an industry goes through a, a massive transition like this, you can think about telecom moving from you know corded phones into cell phones and the, the tor- sort of radical change we've seen in that usage over the last three decades that people couldn't possibly have foreseen at the beginning of it. We see something like that here, and we're just at the beginning of it. So, you know, if you step outside of fuel cells, we're seeing innovations like e-axles because electrons are so easy to transport around the vehicle. We no longer have to create the mechanical energy in the engine and, and send it down a drive shaft to the axle. We can actually drive the vehicle right at the wheel, which leads to all sorts of efficiencies. <clears throat> so when you look at fuel cells, it is an energy generation source. It's, it's almost a type of battery uh, is a good way to think of it. So when you have a deployment like you described where we have a fuel cell and a battery bank, the primary purpose of the fuel cell system in that is to recharge the batteries. So it's the batteries that are really driving the vehicle. And that sort of deployment lends itself extremely well to an urban freight environment. So whether that's drayage environment or a logistics vehicle uh, where there's a lot of braking, regenerative braking energy that can be accessed, where it's easy to add grid electricity to the vehicle, it's a great configuration for that vehicle to provide the economics that the end operator needs. When we look at something like a long haul truck, so this would be a market that Nikola, for example, is, is going after, uh, it makes more sense to go to what we call a fuel cell dominant powertrain, where the fuel cell is actually providing most of the power and there's just a very small amount of batteries on board that are providing uh, regenerative braking and, and um, support for acceleration. And so we're going to see over the coming years really interesting reconfigurations of the powertrain as everybody figures out what the benefits of these different technologies are and how best to deploy them to satisfy what is ultimately required, uh, which is what does the operator need to have a vehicle that provides the work that they're looking for at the cost that they need. Can you give me some idea of how those two systems would look if you have a fuel cell and a battery bank in either of those applications. Uh, the batteries I would gather would have to be bigger, a larger battery mm-hmm. bank, higher capacity with the uh, uh, yep. the non-fuel cell dominant, I'm not sure what you call that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, energy, uh, we range call it extender, range extender. Range yeah. extender, yeah. So how would those two different, how would those systems differ in appearance or electrical capacity or however you want to measure it? So, uh, Jim, that's a great question. So what we, what we look at in trading off between is this a range extender vehicle or, or is it a, what we call a fuel cell dominant vehicle? 
really has to do with the environment it's in and the sort of duty cycle that the vehicle is going to be undertaking. So in a range extended vehicle, as you've said, there are more batteries and that adds to the weight of the vehicle, but it also provides access to uh, less expensive operating and better regenerative uh, braking opportunities because the vehicle is going to be stopping and starting very frequently and typically running at lower speeds. What you'd see in that environment is a battery uh, pack that's sized to take care of peak acceleration and peak power requirements and a fuel cell system that's sized to manage the average power requirement for the vehicle, which can be quite, quite low over time because of the start and stop. Mm -hmm. In a fuel cell dominant vehicle, you see a fuel cell that's sized to take care of the acceleration and highway cruising speed effectively. So as an example, if you're sizing a fuel cell for a drayage truck in an urban environment, you might need to only put a fuel cell system on there that has about 50 to 70 kilowatts of power because of the fact that it will be stopping and starting and the batteries play a more dominant role. When you're sizing a fuel cell for a long haul heavy duty truck, you now need to look at something that's going to be able to supply at least 150 kilowatts of power because that's what a class eight vehicle requires at highway speed but actually more. So now you're looking at a fuel cell system that's gonna provide maybe 200 or 250 kilowatts of power to provide the acceleration that's required uh, in the vehicle. And so that's how you see the different sizing. And in that fuel cell dominant vehicle at 250 kilowatts of, of engine power, you'd have a very small battery uh, bank because you're just really looking at recapturing some braking energy when that vehicle stops. Well, being a, a, a diesel guy from way back when, um, I can tell you in 25 words or less the differences between a Detroit diesel engine and a Volvo diesel engine and a Cummins diesel engine. They all do the same thing at the end of the day, but they do it slightly differently. What about fuel cells? I mean, to me, uh, the process sounds pretty ubiquitous. It, uh, you know, two gases in, electrochemical reaction takes place, energy comes out. Are there differences between, you know, say a Ballard and a Bosch and a Loop fuel cell? Can you differentiate yourself in the marketplace uh, through some part of that technology working or performing differently than the other ones do? Absolutely. So uh, just as you've said, different diesel engine companies have chosen different performance metrics to compete on. So it might be low end torque, it might be high end efficiency, and, <clears throat> and they accomplish those differences through different cylinder sizes, different compression rates, different materials that they use in the engine. And all those same factors apply in, in slightly different ways to fuel cells. So the gases that go into the fuel cells, uh, we control what pressure uh, that go, they go in at. And, and depending on how you change the pressure, it changes the characteristics of the fuel cell, whether it's efficiency or, or power output, what have you. Uh, and so there are all those same opportunities you see in diesel engines to differentiate. Uh, we have it at Loop as well. And each company has its own secret sauce or technology, if you will. At Loop, we have a technology suite that we refer to as eFlow. And eFlow is a, a significant competitive differentiator. It's one of the reasons that, that Cummins made the investment in Loop, or the two investments that they did. Uh, and it gives us advantages in the marketplace that allow us to deliver better fuel efficiency, uh, a smaller package, so packaging is important, which allows us to get more power on board. And so we, we can pull some of those levers to differentiate ourselves from Ballard and, and other competitors in the marketplace uh, so that there is a, a, a choice to be made. And, and we believe that uh, we're going to win that choice most of the time. 
Interesting. Okay. I wasn't aware of that. I can see different OEMs uh, aligning themselves with different fuel cell providers, you hopefully, in different yeah. ways for different reasons and different applications. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, can we take just a couple of minutes and maybe cover a bit of the terminology that, you know, some of the listeners may not be that familiar with? Fuel cells are pretty new. So we yeah. hear terms like uh, stacks and modules and uh, all sorts of things that we're not familiar with in the diesel lexicon. So could you kind of just provide a little bit of a quick dictionary on what's what here? Sure. I'm, I'm happy to. So I think um, <clears throat> diesel engines have been around for a hundred years and there's been time in there for, for that lexicon to develop and everybody to have a common understanding of, of exactly what it means. <clears throat> I think I'll provide a definition, but my, my definition may differ a little bit because fuel cells are, are younger and in, in terms of being products. Um, and so I don't think we have that same level of standardization. However, uh, when if we go from the outside in, uh, a, a fuel cell engine would be exactly what um, uh, your listeners would think of as a diesel engine in terms of a comparable. So a diesel engine takes in uh, fuel, combusts the fuel, and returns mechanical energy uh, to the system that probably drives a crankshaft. And so the fuel cell engine would take in the fuel convert that fuel into electricity and then deliver that electricity to a motor, an electric motor, which would then provide the mechanical energy to the system. And so within that engine, there are going to be all sorts of different components, which includes the fuel cell stack, but there's uh, there's a compressor, there's likely a humidifier, there are control systems, uh, and there's different valving and piping and wiring to, to manage the production of the electricity. The fuel cell stack is really the heart of the fuel cell system. It's, it's where that chemical reaction happens. And so all the rest of those components in, the, in what's called the fuel cell engine, or sometimes referred to as a fuel cell module, are there to control the environment for the stack and manage the offtake of the water and the electricity. And so a stack is really, it's a stack. So if you imagine- Literally uh, a stack. It, it's literally a stack. Okay. So there are two components in a stack. Uh, one is called a bipolar plate and the other is called a membrane and a stack is a stacking up of those components. So it alternating bipolar plate and membrane and in, in our systems, uh, it, a stack can have between, you know, 140 to 200, uh, bipolar plates in it and an equivalent number of, of membranes. And so the membrane is where the reaction happens. The membrane causes hydrogen and oxygen to combine uh, to form water and release an electron. And the bipolar plates on each side of that membrane are basically have the channels that guide the gases. So on, on one side, you have hydrogen being guided over the membrane and on the other side, you've got oxygen being guided over the membrane. And so this sequence of, of what's called unit cells produces electricity. The stack funnels the water out and captures the electrons and passes them on to the engine. That's probably the simplest way to think of it. So the stack is the heart of the system. You might think of it like in the diesel engine equivalent, the cylinder, where the combustion takes place and that mechanical energy from the combustion is captured by the system. Um, similar sort of concept. Uh, and then everything else around the cylinder is designed to provide the right pressure, fuel amount, and conditions, and the ability to capture that mechanical energy and transfer it out. 
Would it be safe to say that if you wanted to have a 150 kilowatt uh, fuel cell engine, you might use X number of uh, bipolar plates in the stack, whereas if you wanted a 250 kilowatt unit, you'd add more? Is it that simple? Uh, sort of. Uh, you actually, so because bipolar plates are designed by each company, you can change the size of the bipolar plate as well. Okay. And so, so there are different ways to, to increase the power production of the stack. Uh, you can also increase the pressure to get more performance out of the same size stack. And so there are a number of different levers to pull. Uh, and, you know, just like with diesel engines, you might increase the cylinder size or you might change different things to, to get that higher performance level out of the engine. So there are quite a, a good number of variables to, to manipulate in, 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 uh, in building a, a fuel cell stack to mm -hmm. deliver what the performance that the customer requires. And one of the benefits I referred to eFlow earlier, uh, one of the benefits of eFlow is it gives us, uh, we believe, much more flexibility with those levers than our competitors have. And so we can drive to different performance levels and higher performance levels than the competition because of our underlying technology. Fascinating. What's, uh, what's the life expectancy of a typical fuel cell and what kind of maintenance does it need over its life? Well, the maintenance is very straightforward. This is actually one of the benefits of electric powertrains in general is um, there's very little maintenance. So for a fuel cell system, basically the only maintenance required is the changing of air filters on a regular basis because the oxygen in a fuel cell system comes from the air around us that we breathe. Uh, there are obviously pollutants in that, especially in an urban environment. And that needs to be filtered out so it doesn't damage the fuel cell system. So those filters need to be changed regularly. How regularly really depends on the environment you're in. So in China, maybe once a month. Uh, other parts of the world, it might be once every year or two. Uh, it just really depends on, on the environment, like I say. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the major benefits of, uh, to total cost of ownership when you look at electric systems and fuel cell systems versus diesel or natural gases, your maintenance costs go down dramatically. Um, when, uh, sorry, what was the first part of the question? Uh, life expectancy. How long life do these things last? <clears throat> so life expectancy is, is really good and continuing to grow. So today, uh, life expectancy for a fuel cell system is similar to uh, a clean diesel engine. So you'd be looking at a, a, an engine rebuild somewhere around the 400, 500,000 mile mark uh, for a, a fuel cell system where you need to replace the stacks. And, and as I understand it from my friends that own diesel, heavy duty diesel trucks, that's about what you're looking at these days with a, with a clean diesel engine. Um, the great news on that is that as innovations continue, we can see a line of sight to uh, fuel cell engines having similar sorts of lifetimes as what you're seeing from diesel engines previously where engine rebuilds would happen closer to a million miles. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, so we have uh, what I would say is parity today to the competition and, and uh, a return to what, uh, what operators experienced previously or knew in, in previous years in terms of these vehicles being able to run for extraordinarily long times without uh, engine rebuilds and, and with the added benefit of really low maintenance requirements. What sort of segments do you see uh, hydrogen fuel cells first rolling out in light, medium duty, heavy duty, uh, vocational, um, or all of the above? That's a great question. And what we're seeing around the world is that decision is being driven by the market more than anything. 
just give you some examples globally of, of the sorts of discussions that we're having and the sorts of things that we're seeing in terms of vehicle deployments. So in China, which is the most aggressive market uh, for fuel cells and will remain so for the next decade, we've seen the Chinese government commit to the deployment of a million fuel cell vehicles by 2030. And they're starting that by supporting cities, what they call hydrogen cities. So they've selected 10 cities in China that they're going to support in a significant way over the next few years to really build out that infrastructure and, and supply chain. And so in China, we see a focus on what we would call medium duty commercial vehicles. Uh, so that would be uh, municipal bus fleets, uh, heavier logistics vehicles, so eight to 10 t- ton logistics vehicles in cities like Shanghai, Beijing, and that sort of thing. And so that uh, is really driving a certain segment of fuel cell sizes. In Europe, we're seeing something different. While it's still uh, moved by the government, ultimately, the regulators are requiring uh, vehicle operators to reduce their diesel or eliminate their diesel use. Um, We're seeing the biggest moves coming from the smaller commercial vehicles, logistics vehicles in the three and a half to sort of seven or eight ton size, where uh, those fleets have been quite aggressive over the last few years in evaluating battery electric solutions and have come to the conclusion that in order to deploy across their fleet, they actually need a, a hybrid fuel cell battery solution. And so those are the, the logistics fleets in the smaller commercial vehicles and, and the types of vehicles we're seeing uh, show a real interest in fuel cells in Europe in the scaling perspective are things like the Volkswagen eCrafter and the Daimler Sprinter van. And so, so that's what we see in that market. In, uh, in California, which is really the only meaningful zero emission market in North America, at this stage, it's too early to tell. Uh, there have been pilot projects across different sizes of vehicles. Certainly, there's a lot of momentum in the smaller vehicles. Uh, the Rivians of, of the world and Lightning Systems have great momentum there. Uh, our project in California is heavy duty, and, and there is a clear cut advantage in heavy duty for fuel cells. And so I would expect that we'll see the first real traction in North America in that heavy duty class eight market and and that will likely start in uh, urban class eight markets like the the drainage market. We're talking with Ben Nyland. He's the president and CEO of Loop Energy based in Burnaby, British Columbia. Uh, We're going to take a short break. And when we come back after the break, we'll talk about uh, a little bit about Loop's, uh, Loop Energy's business model. And we'll get some idea of where, uh, where and when these trucks will be hitting the streets. Stay with us. This episode is sponsored by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange, a unique networking event where fleet managers and suppliers connect and collaborate. HDTX 2021 takes place May 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com to learn more. So we're back with Ben Nyland, the president and CEO of Loop Energy. Uh, Ben, let's talk a little bit about the economics of of the fuel cell. Uh, What's, you know, the total cost of ownership, the capital costs, operating costs, uh, just, you know, hang some numbers on this thing for us. Well, that's a great question, Jim. And obviously it it really depends uh, per vehicle. Uh, One of the things that's been really important for Loop is that we have selected products and markets where we see the total cost of ownership competing with diesel over time. So obviously uh, in the diesel market, we've got a hundred years of development. We've got significant manufacturing development and supply chains. And of course, uh, the supply of diesel is uh, the infrastructure is well established. And so 
really our, our competitor, what we view as our primary competitor is very much cost op optimized over the course of a century of development. Um, with fuel cells, we're just getting started. And so the volumes of production, the supply chains are not quite as mature. And so as you would expect, uh, the capital cost of a fuel cell vehicle is substantially higher today than, than it would be for a diesel vehicle. And what we're seeing in Europe and, and certainly in China is commitment by governments to support that and make sure that that cost is not having to be borne by the operators. Um, the good news is with fuel cells, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, as we mature and as the volumes grow, we actually see those capital costs coming down very close to diesel. And when you consider the, the maintenance being almost zero, virtually zero for a, for a fuel cell vehicle over the lifetime, uh, and hydrogen prices close to where they are today, uh, being competitive with diesel, that total cost of ownership becomes very competitive very quickly. And so depending on the vehicle, and we look primarily at uh, vehicles that are in heavy usage, so on the order of 10 or more hours per day, so a drayage truck or, or that sort of thing, uh, the TCO on a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle within the next few years will become very competitive with diesel vehicles, even without the subsidies. Hmm. Is it fair at this point to compare fuel cells to diesel or should we be, should we be comparing fuel cells to battery electric systems? Well, I think it, so both comparisons can be made. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, we don't actually see batteries necessarily as being competitive. We, we see them being complementary, and we see fuel cells and batteries working together quite well, mm -hmm. especially in this commercial vehicle market. Um, <clears throat> the fact of the matter is that if you try to put enough batteries onto a drayage truck to make it work, you're going to have to sacrifice cargo. Yeah, ultimately. And, yeah. and, and so that trade-off can't be made in commercial vehicles. There, there are operational imperatives that override that. So, so the decision is not going to be made based on technology. The decision is going to be made based on uh, the operational requirements. And, and just like you have certain vehicles that use gasoline and other vehicles that use diesel, it's not because one is inherently superior to the other. It's because the end operator has requirements that dictate that choice. So, <clears throat> so we don't really compare ourselves against battery electric. Um, except in scenarios where there's a, a, a competitor that doesn't make sense. So, for example, the Class 8, we just we just don't see that pure battery electric Class 8 vehicles are viable in, in almost any context. Um, but the reality is that operators have businesses that they're running today, and those businesses have certain revenue lines and expenses. And in order for operators to make this transition to uh, electric powertrains, the, the, either the revenue number needs to increase if, if the costs are going to increase, uh, or you need That's to figure unlikely. out a way to keep the costs the same. Yeah. And, and uh, in, in a very competitive world that we live in right now that, that most of the vehicle operators are, are working in, uh, there are probably not a lot of opportunities to increase that revenue line. Uh, and so we, we really do look at whether it's fair or not, um, the competition for this at the operator level being diesel because that's the incumbent. Okay. And, okay. And so that's the way we look at it. Well, from the, from the operator's point of view, um, fleet goes out to invest in some green technology. They're going to be asking all kinds of questions about what best suits their application. What sort of questions will they, or should they be asking themselves first, I guess, when they start out trying to decide whether they're going to go battery or fuel cell? Well, there's, uh, there are so many questions, probably too many to, to, to answer on this call, but <clears throat> at the, off the top of my head, 
Um, you know, the first question to ask is, what's the duty cycle for my vehicles? Do they, how far do they need to travel? How much cargo do they need to haul? Um, and, and do I want different vehicles in my fleet to deal with different duty cycles? So many operators don't want that. They want yeah. one vehicle so they know how to maintain it. There's no mystery about it. Um, and so they really need to pick a vehicle that manages their most difficult run, right? The longest run with the heaviest cargo. And, and so that is, is, as we're seeing it, typically pushing operators towards looking at a fuel cell or fuel cell hybrid with battery type vehicle. The second thing that's important to look at in, in the big picture is how big is my fleet? So when, when you look at deploying one or two vehicles, <clears throat> uh, battery electric is much simpler to do because you probably have the infrastructure in place already to plug that vehicle in and charge it overnight or can satisfy that with fairly minimal upgrades to, to existing infrastructure. The opposite is true for fuel cells. Uh, if you're only deploying one or two vehicles, it can, it can be a high bar uh, to deploy one or two fuel cell vehicles because there may not be fuel in your area and hydrogen can be very expensive to move in, in small quantities. Mm -hmm. um, but as you scale the fleet, once you get to vehicle fleet sizes of 50 or 100 or, or maybe even just 20, um, then if you're plugging those in, you start dealing with some very significant electrical challenges. You may even have to upgrade transmission infrastructure to the facility because of the electrical draw of these vehicles. Whereas when you get into those larger fleets, it becomes much easier to deploy hydrogen vehicles and the, the cost effectiveness of hydrogen uh, improves dramatically with volume. And so this is why we're seeing, especially in places like Europe, a commercial drive from fleet operators towards fuel cell vehicles because the economics and the deployment uh, uh, the ease of deployment, I would say, increases dramatically for fuel cells over batteries as the fleet size increases. We're learning now, uh, thanks to Penske, I guess uh, we did a podcast with them in the last season talking about the uh, challenges of setting up the infrastructure in the fleet environment. And you know, one of the things that they were suggesting was, you know, the bigger the, the, bigger the, uh, the operation, the more difficult it is for all the reasons you mentioned, the transmission lines, the transformers, where are you going to put them? You know, getting a couple of megawatts of energy into a truck fleet is not going to be easy. So how does it work with hydrogen? And I mean, you don't pull this stuff out of the ground. It has to be produced somewhere, delivered somewhere or. Well, so you're absolutely right. Hydrogen has to be produced somewhere. <clears throat> the beauty is that uh, it is already being produced in a number of different environments um, and it can be produced uh, from solar or wind energy. So there, there's a lot of flexibility in terms of how and where hydrogen can be produced. What we've been focusing on with Loop is really looking at where hydrogen is being produced today and finding opportunities in fleets close to that hydrogen production. Okay. So a great example of this is ports. So almost every port in the world has an oil refinery in it. And in order to refine oil, you must produce hydrogen. And so by extension, there is a hydrogen supply in almost every port in the world. And that makes drayage trucks and yard trucks a really interesting initial market for hydrogen vehicles. In fact, the Port of LA would be a great example of this. There's actually a hydrogen pipeline that runs right through the middle of the Port of Los Angeles. Uh, so there's hydrogen there. It's simply a matter of redirecting and, and, and taking some of that supply. There are also numerous uh, industrial processes that flare off hydrogen. 
So the production of hydrogen peroxide, as an example, uh, flares off hydrogen typically. And so that hydrogen can be captured and redirected to applications. So there are these sources of hydrogen that exist today um, that are really very cost effective uh, and will allow deployment quickly. And then as we move forward, as you mentioned, there's the opportunity for electrolysis as well, which is producing hydrogen from electricity. And that opens up opportunities like what Nicola had talked about, which is uh, solar farms that produce hydrogen for uh, stations that are on long haul routes. And so you don't actually have to transport the hydrogen to those stations. It's, it's produced on site at a very effective cost uh, and can be consumed by vehicles at, at truck stops, just like they are today. And so I think the, the point is that there's a lot of flexibility around hydrogen. That infrastructure will need to be built over time, but we believe that uh, it'll be built around fleets as they need it. So starting in central areas like ports and then uh, sort of gravitating out from there. One of the concerns I've heard about battery electric vehicles, specifically in Canada, where we tend to have pretty cold winters, and you know, some people have expressed concern about uh, trying to operate battery electric vehicles in places like Edmonton and Winnipeg, where it's really cold in the winter. Is hydrogen going to be up against those same issues? No, actually, that's one of the things that drives these uh, sorts of vehicles towards a hydrogen solution. Um, there is no performance impact in terms of efficiency uh, on a fuel cell vehicle based on temperature. And we do see this drive in a number of commercial markets, including buses, <clears throat> where um, performance, you get sort of a double whammy in a winter market in, a, in an electric bus in that you not only have a reduction in the performance of the batteries, but you also have a need to run heaters, which mm -hmm. typically are electric heaters on the bus. And so the efficiency and by extension range of a municipal bus drops dramatically over the winter months in a place like Edmonton, Winnipeg, or New York City, even for mm -hmm. that matter. Mm -hmm. um, and Chicago. So, yeah, Chicago. Any of these, any city where you see uh, temperatures below zero over the winter, fuel cells have a dramatic performance advantage over batteries. Okay, so here we are, fourth quarter of 2020. We're a couple of years into our sort of awareness of, of uh, hydrogen fuel cells, at least, you know, from the layperson's point of view, you've been at it a lot longer. Uh, what still needs to be done? Uh, you know, when are we going to see these vehicles starting to roll out in significant numbers, not at scale, but uh, enough to make a difference? And, and what do we still need to do to get there? Well, I think, so if we look around the world, um, it, the work is being done. If we look at China, there's going to be a dramatic uh, shift over the next few years uh, towards fuel cells. They deployed tens of thousands of, of battery electric vehicles, hundreds of thousands of battery electric vehicles over the last several years. Uh, they're now shifting their attention towards fuel cells and will be transitioning towards fuel cells. And so the vehicles are going to become more mature. The powertrains are going to become more mature. Infrastructure will be built in, in China. In Europe, we're seeing something similar. Tremendous amount of activity, uh, a tremendous amount of focus by uh, European companies. So um, uh, Daimler and Volvo just a few months ago announced a billion dollar joint venture to develop fuel cell uh, fuel cells for heavy duty vehicles in Europe. And so we're going to see significant deployments in Europe. We expect that the that most of that scale up is going to happen in the second half of this decade. So there will be significant. Uh, increases in volume over the next four or five years, but the geometric growth in this market will happen in, in 25 through uh, 30. 
uh, you know, second half of the decade. In North America, uh, we want to see this growth. Uh, to be frank, there's been uh, the challenge really has been a disconnect between uh, California's uh, desires to move in this direction and, and the rest of the country. Um, so there hasn't been the same support on a national level in the states as there has been in California. And so that misalignment or, or lack of alignment has created a difficult situation for the vehicle suppliers. Because as you can appreciate, whether you're uh, Peterbilt or, or Freightliner or Daimler Trucks or whoever, um, you can't really develop one uh, product line for California and a different product line for the rest of the country. There needs to be that alignment. So hopefully we see over the coming years some better alignment federally and, and, and at the state level in the states, which I think will will lead to some decisions in the vehicle manufacturers to start rolling out more volume of vehicles and making these technologies uh, more accessible for their customers. Well, I've wondered about that. Um, California, of course, is prepared to spend an enormous amount of money to uh, subsidize the uptake of these vehicles, get them into market. But if you talk about a place like Louisiana or Rhode Island or, <laughs> you know, Prince Edward Island, uh, those jurisdictions don't have the money to throw at, uh, at subsidizing this technology. How are you going to roll it out across the country if, if those uh, uh, subsidy playing fields are so uneven? Well, I think, so the important thing to recognize here is that subsidy is very much a temporary situation. Yeah. And it's meant to make up for uh, volume issues. So a market like California really can can make all the difference in terms of driving those costs down, the capital costs and, and deployment costs down substantially, so that the other markets don't need to bear that cost. And, and we've seen this uh, repeatedly in the California market. California has led the world. Uh, in fact, I, I would venture to say this may be the first time California hasn't led the world in terms of fuel cell deployments uh, versus other emission requirements. And they've borne the brunt of that initial cost because it's a large enough market they can. And so those other markets, Louisiana and Rhode Island, have really benefited from emissions regulations in, in cars and also trucks uh, that were driven forward by California and by the larger markets. So I don't think there's an expectation that those smaller markets would need to subsidize this. It's more uh, a, an alignment of interests or an alignment of views that this is important we're going to require it from a regulatory perspective and we're we're letting the vehicle manufacturers know that they need to move in this direction in order to be able to sell vehicles in our market over the longer term and and by having regulators send a clear message across the market that this is going to be the case it allows the vehicle manufacturers to start moving in that direction so it's not an expectation of smaller markets will subsidize the move it's more an ex, uh, uh, a requirement that the smaller markets say, yes, this is important. We're going to require it in the future. We're talking with Ben Nyland. He's the president and CEO of uh, Burnaby, British Columbia-based Loop Energy. They're going to be a pretty serious player in the hydrogen fuel cell market in the coming years. Ben, thanks for your time. It was a great conversation. Jim, I really appreciate it. Thank you for giving us the opportunity. HDT Talks Trucking is sponsored by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange. HDTX 2021 takes place May 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com to view the agenda and apply to be our guest at HDTX 2021. I hope my conversation with Ben Nyland has helped clarify your understanding of fuel cells and their market potential. We obviously have some ground to cover, but fuel cells are closer to reality than many of us might think. 
If you're interested in alternatives to diesel fuel, we've got a couple of episodes in Season 4. We have one on renewable natural gas. We have an update on Penske Truck Leasing's battery electric fuel tests that are now underway in Southern California. And we also dig into the future of the diesel engine. If you're new to the podcast, please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And if you like the podcast, please spread the word on social media. If there's something you'd like us to cover, please drop me a line at jpark at truckinginfo.com. HDT Talks Trucking is produced by Deb Lockridge, recording and audio production by Jim Park. Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine is published by Bobbitt Business Media. I'm Jim Park. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.